in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. O sacred heart of Jesus, the immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. St. Pius X, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In our last conference last month, we talked about, among other things, the opening speech of John the 23rd at Vatican II, which I told you was the speech that if, if the Holy Ghost, as it were, had come to Vatican II, he left at that point. John the 23rd said, we're going to update, we're going to change how we present the divinely revealed truths, that is, the sacred deposit of faith, and we're going to change how the church uh, is, in a, the church's relationship, as it were, with the modern world. Now, after the Vatican Council had begun, and John the Twenty-Third was at the opening session, he never went back to the council. He did not attend the Vatican Council. He left it, as he said, to the bishops to do the work. I had mentioned the priest Xavier Rin, who was the author of the book Letters from Vatican City. Xavier Rin said this, John XXIII went about his daily tasks almost as if nothing extraordinary were taking place in the great basilica below his rooms. It was on January the 29th, uh, in the year 1963, just about three months after the opening of Vatican II, that for the first time, John Twenty-Third granted an interview to the press. And in the interview, he again expressed his desire and the need that the church must update. She must make things relevant to the times. And he did say, we must make the deposit of faith, in so many words, relevant to our modern era. Xavier Wren carefully recorded his words. And speaking like a true modernist, and by that I mean employing very ambiguous expressions, John Twenty-Third said the following words. This is a direct quote. And this is to the press, the media. As regards the council, he said, it is committed by fidelity 
to the basic doctrines of Christ, which give it authority and which are immutable in the sacred deposit of faith. We added immediately that our sacred obligation is not only to take care of this precious treasure. By that he means the deposit of faith, as I had explained it in the last conference. The deposit of faith is the sacred doctrines, divinely revealed truths, divine revelation, moral, infallible moral teachings of the church, the mass, the sacraments, the scriptures, that is all handed down. And as I pointed out, that deposit of faith was given to the apostles by Christ, and the apostles entrusted it to the bishops. And the bishops are the guardians of the deposit of faith. John the Twenty-Third said, our sacred obligation is not only to take care of this precious treasure, as if we had only to worry about the past. But, he goes on to say, we must also devote ourselves with joy and without fear to the work of giving this ancient and eternal doctrine a relevancy corresponding to the conditions of our era. A repeat of what he said in his opening speech. It's the same thing. And Paul VI is going to repeat the same line. We have to guard the sacred deposit of faith. We have to keep it intact as it has been handed down. And then they always add, but well, we've got to make it relevant to the time. And they say, how do you make it relevant to the time? Well, they say we're going to do it by how we explain it, how we teach it. And that's how they change it. At this time, when John Twenty-Third gave this audience to the press, nobody knew at the time he was speaking. Nobody even knew when he opened Vatican II that on the previous September the 23rd, 1962, he had been diagnosed with cancer of the stomach. And he was a dying man. But they hid this from the public. In fact, April of 1963, it was still not publicly known. But John XXIII gave a hint that he was dying to a group of pilgrims at St. Peter's. He said to them in an audience, that which happens to all men will soon happen to the Pope who speaks to you today. May 25th, uh, 19. 63, he suffered a severe hemorrhage and was in need of several blood transfusions. He was told that day that nothing could be done for him. In his book, John Twenty-Third, The Pope of the Council, the British author Peter Hebblewaith wrote these words. 
On May 31st at 11 a.m., Petrus von Leard, the papal sacristan, was at the bedside of the dying Pope ready to anoint him. The Pope began to speak for the last time. I had the grace, John XXIII said, to be born into a Christian family, modest, poor, but with the fear of the Lord. My time on earth is drawing to a close, but Christ will live on and continue his work in the church. And these were his, among his last words. He said, souls, souls, ut omnes unum sent. Souls, souls. The Latin words, ut omnes unum sent, meaning English, Souls, souls, that they may be one. Usually, when a bishop or a priest says soul, like Cardinal Raphael Mary Delval would say, souls, souls, give me souls, take away everything else. Meaning, God grant me the grace to save souls, that they may be saved for eternity. It's just interesting to me, and this is my own personal conjecture I'm giving you. Even St. John Bosco used to say, souls, souls, give me souls, take away everything else. And he has only desire was to save souls. John the 23rd says that they may be one. That they may be one. It is very curious why he used that expression. Because those words that they may be one actually were spoken by Christ in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 17. And at the very end of the Last Supper, St. John records our Lord's prayer for the apostles and their successors, the bishops and the priests, that they may be one being united in him. And John the 23rd says this, souls, souls, that they may be one. And I conjecture that based on his false ecumenism, he was talking one big church of all different religions, united together, not necessarily in the Catholic Church. And again, that's my own conjecture. John the 23rd uh, died on June the 3rd, 1963, at the age of 81. He was buried on June the 6th. The cause for the canonization of good Pope John, as he was called, was opened by Paul VI in 1965. And on September the 3rd, in the year 2000, John Paul II declared John the 23rd blessed. At the same time, he also declared Pope Pius IX to be blessed. And on April uh, 27th, 2014, 
If you recall, not so long ago, Francis canonized John XXIII and John Paul II. I was just telling a gentleman here that when Francis announced the canonization of Paul VI, which has already taken place, right? I'm just tired of doing this. <laughs> the, the quotes here, right? When he announced that, he actually had, if I could say, the, objectively speaking, the arrogance to say that he and Benedict were on the waiting list to be canonized. Now, I would also point out something very interesting in regard to this canonization of John the 23rd and John Paul II, Francis actually dispensed with the traditional second miracle that was the long-standing practice of the church where she would declare someone a saint. Two miracles. And Francis said he based his decision to canonize John the 23rd without the miracle because the merits of John the 23rd uh, were so great, the work he did at Vatican II deserved, made him worthy of canonization. The fact that he opened Vatican II, right? I have another word instead of canonization. <laughs> and it is interesting that the uh, Society of St. Pius X rejects the canonization of these two. And I understand they reject it on the ground that the second miracle was not done. The second miracle was not taken into account for, and therefore this canonization cannot be valid. This objection is unsound and theologically erroneous. And this is so because... The power to canonize a saint does not rest on the uh, it does not rest on the the method the power or the process of canonization. The power to canonize a saint rests on the supreme apostolic authority of the Roman Pontiff who exercises infallibility in this regard so that the church cannot err in the canonization of a saint. If the Pope, by his supreme apostolic authority, declares someone to be a saint in heaven, it must be so. Thus, their objection is unsound and theologically erroneous. It is also interesting to note that John the 23rd is not only a saint in this modernist church. The Anglican Church of Canada has officially recognized him as Saint John the 23rd. So has the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. They call him St. John the 23rd. His feast day is October the 11th, the day he opened Vatican II. And by the way, 
That was the feast of the divine maternity of Our Lady. And it was also the first conference we had here, October 11th, last October. How all these things converge, right? (laughs) (laughs) So he died on June the 23rd, 1963. A papal conclave to elect his successor was opened on June 19th in the Sistine Chapel. 82 cardinals were eligible to vote, but only 80 were present. Joseph Cardinal Menzenti of Hungary could not participate as he could not leave the U.S. Embassy in Hungary and travel to Rome. And the Cardinal Archbishop of Quijo, Ecuador, was too old and sick to travel. But on June the 21st, 1963, Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini, the Archbishop of Milan, was elected. And when asked whether he would accept, he replied, Accepto in nomine Domini. I accept in the name of the Lord. And at 11.22 a.m., white smoke arose from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel, and Cardinal Ani announced the election to the whole world. Just a few things to give you some background on Paul VI. He was born in 1897, He died August the 6th, 1978. He is most famous for bringing Vatican II to what is called a successful conclusion. He is also famous for promoting all of the reforms that Vatican II called for especially in regard to the Mass and the Sacraments. He is also famous for uh, initiating, and not even initiating, but going further than John Twenty-Third on ecumenical dialogue, as it were, with non-Catholic religions, as well as with political activists. For example, he's the first Pope, as it were, to meet Dr. Michael Ramsey, that is, an Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury. And there, the picture of him, they're signing a mutual agreement there. That they recognize, the agreement is like paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs long, but the gist of it is basically saying, we recognize each other. We recognize each other, that you have your religion, we have our religion, we have differences, but we also have things in common, and we're going to work together to become one again. There's a a, a, uh, declaration by them, which I'm not going to read that to you. Um, But that's the gist of what they said together. 
Here he is, and you see how they're always embracing each other? This. Here's with Athenagoras I, the patriarch of Constantinople. And, and by the way, going back to uh, Dr. Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, Paul VI let him bless the people in St. Peter's Square. He let him give a blessing to all the people in St. Peter's Square. Dr. Michael Ramsey has no more power to bless the people in St. Peter's Square than any one of you. I think I might have mentioned before, I believe it was 1896, Pope Leo XIII settled the question once and for all that the priestly and episcopal orders and the Anglican Church of England, which we know here as the Episcopal Church, are invalid, period. The debate was over, and yet he let him do this in St. Peter's Square. And here, as I say, he's meeting with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch, and all this stuff here, the embraces. And then they're sitting together there, St. Peter's, and they're reading a common declaration. And they're declaring basically the same thing. Here's what we, we recognize each other, we disagree on things, we agree on some things, and Paul VI as well, uh, in recognizing, recognizing him, actually gave him uh, a relic of St. Andrew the Apostle that was in Rome at the time. I think it was one of the arms of St. Andrew. Uh, St. Andrew the Apostle, according to tradition, founded the church in the ancient city of Byzantium, which is what is now present-day Istanbul and northern Turkey there, bordering kind of across the Aegean Sea from Greece. Byzantium was later named Constantinople by the Emperor Constantine the Great, and it became the seat of the Greek Orthodox Church in 1054 when they broke off from Rome. They looked to St. Andrew as their founder, as they say the Latins looked to St. Peter. And for centuries, the Greek Orthodox have said, that is, St. Andrew is the older brother of Peter, so we are the older brother of the popes. Therefore, you should be looking to us. You know, people can contrive very interesting stories. <laughs> there is their lengthy agreement there in recognizing each other. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Paul VI invited him to the Vatican, where he met with him. And he congratulated Dr. King on his peaceful methods of obtaining and looking for equality of rights for all people. And told him to keep up the good work and what he was doing in the United States. Now, if you know anything about Dr. Martin Luther King, 
A lot of things I'm not going to say about Dr. Martin Luther King. But wherever he went, there was violence. Always violence. In fact, when King was assassinated, Paul VI said that we just lost, in so many words, we just lost a Christian prophet for racial integration. The United Nations. And I'm pointing all these things out to just give you an idea of what he was involved with, what he was doing. Here the United Nations, the first, Eric said, the first Pope to address the United Nations, the United Nations, which I believe was founded in 1948, maybe before, sometime after World War II. Here he is addressing the United Nations and calling for an end to all war. Some of you remember, I believe it was just the year before, or two years before, the United States just sent, I think, 100,000 Marines over to Vietnam when the Vietnam War was beginning. I think they already had the first battle in 1964 with the Americans and the Vietnamese already. And he comes over and he's calling for an end to all wars. And in particular, he's talking about what's happening in Vietnam. He told the members of the United Nations that they were the hope of the world. And the world depended on them for peace on earth. Father Francis Fenton, commenting on these words many years ago, once said, I thought our Lord Jesus Christ was the hope of the world. And he who's supposed to be the vicar of Christ addresses an organization which is godless, anti-God, anti-Catholic, anti-Christ, and calls them the hope of the world. He met Jackie Kennedy while he was there. <laughs> Now, he is also famous for his so-called staunch opposition to the use of artificial contraception. And this was especially seen in his encyclical letter of Humane Vitae, 1968. Many a conservative Catholic in the new church will turn to this document and say, see, they are against it. It's condemned. Before Humane Vitae of Paul VI, uh, Pius XI had already authoritatively condemned artificial contraception in his encyclical letter on Christian marriage called Casti Canubii, which is his, as I say in English, Pius XI's, it was his encyclical letter titled On Christian Marriage. 
Pius XII made similar condemnations. But there arose a movement to lift the ban on artificial contraception among Catholic people. And as Pius XI explained already, artificial contraception is intrinsically evil. Something is intrinsically evil, it can never be done. And in this post-World War II age, the atomic age, the rebellious years that was growing among younger people in the 1950s and 60s, there were some priests who thought it acceptable under certain conditions. And the most famous was, and I, I might have mentioned this, was Father Charles Curran, who was a professor of moral theology at the Catholic University of America. And in the classroom, he was openly advocating it as being perfectly acceptable. Many a bishop in the 1960s petitioned the Vatican for a strong, authoritative condemnation of artificial contraception. But as Bishop Kelly told me, Paul VI wanted to study the question. As I've already said, Pius XI already called it intrinsically evil. There's nothing to study here. There's only to pronounce and condemn. But he said, we've got to study this. And a number of years went by while they're studying this. So that by the time Humane Vitae was published in 1968, it was already regularly practiced among a number of Catholic people in the 1960s. Bishop Kelly told me when he was a seminarian at Immaculate Conception here in Huntington, before he went to Acom, uh, he said the deacons, the class of deacons, uh, would go out on weekends. They would be assigned to go to some parish in the Diocese of Rockville Center. And there they would assist the pastor in some way on the weekend. And they would come back on Sunday evenings and then during one of the recreation periods, you know, they would sit and talk with the deacons and they would ask them, like, what did you do? What happened? All that, you know, what was going on? And he said one of the deacons told them that the pastor called all the priests in the rectory and himself for a meeting on a Friday evening. And he called this meeting because he said he wanted to make something very clear when it came to the use of artificial contraception, he said, the question is settled. And the deacon said, I thought he was going to say, it's condemned, it can never be done. But the pastor said, after he said it's already settled, he said, the people can do it. And we are not to stop them. We are only to tell them they must follow their own conscience in this regard. And uh, Bishop Kelly said everybody was shocked by what he had said. And he wasn't the only deacon who came back and said that. 
And I think I may have told you the story, Cardinal Patrick O'Boyle of Washington, D.C. When Humane Vitae was issued, an artificial contraception was now prohibited, not very strongly condemned, but prohibited by Paul VI. O'Boyle approached Charles Curran and said, did you accept this? He said, no. He said, you're fired. He fired him from Catholic University. Charles Curran appealed to the Vatican uh, against Cardinal O'Boyle, and the Vatican upheld Charles Curran and told Cardinal O'Boyle that Charles Curran is to be reinstated as a professor of moral theology at Catholic University, even though he was openly teaching artificial contraception was acceptable. We look at things today as being, oh, how can all these things be happening? People see that today. How can this be happening? They forgot the real shocking things already happened, which laid the groundwork for what we have going on today. In 2012, a Gallup poll was taken in the United States of America of American Catholic women. And the question was put, can one be a good Catholic and use artificial contraception? And the Gallup poll is known as being the most honest and reliable poll taken in the country. Over 80%, close to 90% of the Catholic women polled said yes. One can be a good Catholic and use artificial contraception. And following the Paul VI, Humanae Vitae, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Francis, bishops, pastors around the country, around the whole world, how many times have we ever heard any of them come out strongly and condemn the use of artificial contraception? They don't talk about it. And I know of some cases where priests have admitted if we condemn the use of artificial contraception, half the parish will walk. And then we won't have a parish. <coughs> that is what is going on in the modernist church. That is what that church is all about. The morality is gone. The morality is gone. Yes, I've seen on the news um, a lot of uh, pro-life marches going on. And yes, of course, a pro-life march is a wonderful thing. But it's not just about abortion, though abortion is a very serious issue. I don't want to, certainly don't want to minimize that, the murder of a child. But it's the whole, of a Catholic morality, you have to accept all the morality. We are against abortion, we are against artificial contraception, and we are against unnatural vice. The whole thing. We don't pick and choose. A Catholic does not pick and choose, but they're against all immoralities. 
There we are. As a young priest, Paul VI studied at the Noble Academy of Ecclesiastics in Rome, and he immediately entered the diplomatic service of the Holy See. He worked in the Roman Curia. It is interesting to note that I looked up and down what seminary he went to, because the Noble Academy of Ecclesiastics is not a seminary. It's where already priests ordained go to. They're already priests, and they go to the Noble Academy in Rome to be prepared to be diplomats in the church. The only exception I know is Cardinal Raphael Mary Dalval, who was a seminarian, whom Leo XIII said, you're going to go to the Noble Academy. And, uh, but other than that, I don't know of anyone else. Paul VI, I couldn't find where he actually did his seminary training. All I know is he went to this Noble Academy. But he began working in the Roman Curia, and during the pontificate of Pius XII, he was working in the office of the Secretariat of State. And he worked very closely with Pius XII. And something happened. Something happened that 1954, Pius XII made him the Archbishop of Milan. And there are some who say that Pius XII called Montini his personal gift to Milan. But there is no record that I could find that Pius XII actually sent that. But what is interesting to note is that for the next four years, Archbishop Montini of Milan is never elevated to the rank of cardinal. And for centuries, if you were named the Archbishop of Milan, you were made a cardinal. In the next, what we call, consistory, you would receive the red hat. <clears throat> and Pius XII never gave him the red hat. Because as many speculate, so it seems, his being made Archbishop of Milan and never getting the red hat was a political slap in the face. He was being punished. As we've mentioned before, the Latin saying, uh, promoveator ut moveator. Let him be promoted that he may be moved. They made John the 23rd, the bishop in Bulgaria, sent him away. Pius XII sent him away. And we were all couldn't understand why they would do this. I guess that's just, and I don't want to insult our Italians here, that's just an Italian way to deal with things, I guess. <laughs> when John XXIII was elected Pope in October of 1958, at his first consistory, Giovanni Montini was the first to receive the Cardinal's hand. <laughs> I speculate 
Had he been made a cardinal before, he would have been elected after Pius XII. He was the man. But they went with John XXIII because they didn't have him on TV. That's my own, that's my own speculation. But we'll have more to say about Paul VI in future conferences, just to give you an idea of what he was involved with, what he was doing, besides running Vatican II from 1963 to 1965, because he brought Vatican II to a close on December 8, 1965. And among his closing remarks that he made, he said, Today we are concluding the Second Vatican Council. We bring it to a close at the fullness of its efficiency. The presence, he went on to say, of so many of you, that is the bishops and theologians, the presence of so many of you here clearly demonstrates the well-ordered pattern of this assembly and bears testimony to it. Then he said, among other things, still fresh in our memory are the words uttered in this basilica by our venerated predecessor, John XXIII, of whom we may in truth call the originator of this great synod. In his opening address to the council, he had this to say, the greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine be guarded and taught more effectively. Those are among the last words he said at the council to close it. And again, he repeats the same line that John the 23rd opened with. We're going to guard the sacred deposit of faith more effectively, and at the same time, we're going to present it to the world more effectively. That is, updated and changed so that we can conform with the world. Now, with that said and done here, I want to begin tonight going through briefly the 16 documents of Vatican II. 16 documents are the 16 official writings which contain what the Council changed, what the Council orders to be done in various things, various aspects of the Church. And the 16 documents of Vatican II they contain explicitly and implicitly the modernism that we have seen in the last 50 or so years 
and the destruction of faith and morals all around us. As I've said before, Vatican II contains the seeds for destruction. Everything we've seen in the last 50 years, and, or what you've seen in your parishes, is because of Vatican II. It was a modernist council called by a modernist in which the heresy of modernism was to be promoted and the Catholic religion changed and destroyed. And that's why I often say that no one with the use of reason, no one who would dare preserve the Catholic faith as it has always been, can pick and choose from among the decrees of Vatican II of what's Catholic and what's not. Here's what we accept. Here's what we don't accept. The whole council, all its decrees, all 16 documents, all the changes that are sanctioned, that were called for, that were fostered and promoted by Vatican II, everything, Everything must be thrown into the trash where it belongs. That is our principle. That is what we of the priests, congregation, society, St. Pius V, that's what we adhere to. We accept nothing from Vatican II. It was called by a modernist, and it was called to promote and spread the heresy of modernism and change the Catholic religion. As Pope St. Pius X said in his encyclical letter, Pashendi, modernism, the modernists want to change the Catholic religion. In regard to these documents, though, the material I'm presenting comes from a British bishop, because I'm not going to give you the whole document. I'd have to wake you up and... (laughs) we were to read through all that. It comes from a British bishop named Bishop Basil Christopher Butler. And uh, I think I might have a photo of him here. There he is. Bishop Basil Christopher Butler. Uh, Just some background on him. Bishop Butler was a convert from the Anglican Church. He was born in 1902. He died in 1986. But he was ordained uh, a priest of the Order of St. Benedict in 1933. In 1946, he became the abbot of the monastery. 1966, he was consecrated the auxiliary bishop of Westminster. But the years leading up to Vatican II, he had become recognized in certain circles as a master of theology and sacred scripture. John XXIII called him to the Vatican in 1962 to be one of the experts at Vatican II, one of the advisors, the theologians. 
And according to a priest, Father Valentine Rice, who wrote a book in 1965 called Men Who Make the Council, Dom Christopher Butler, that was his religious title, Dom as a, as a religious abbot, Dom Christopher Butler was among the select group of men who directed the council. That is to say, who kept it in a certain direction. Butler was very influential, not only in the direction of the council, he himself was actively involved in writing most of the 16 documents. And he was a very outspoken proponent of Vatican II. The summaries I have here are from his own personal notes. And what he does is he gives a brief introduction to the document um, that was, and he gives a number of dates on how many council fathers voted for it, voted against it. As you see here, the first one on the Constitution on the Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Vincilium, December 4th, 1963. The final voting, because there were a number of votes taken for each document to pass it as a resolution of the council. The final vote here, 2,147 bishops voted for this document for against it. Now I've got to add something here for you. What most people don't know, whether it was done deliberately or not, I can't say with absolute certitude, but something's certainly not right, that these, the bishops were handed stacks of reading material and given maybe a day or two to go through it before they had to actually vote on it, whether they were promoted or not. Now, a day or two to read all that is not a lot of time. Right? And that's why they had many of their, their own theologians with them pouring through it as quickly as they could. So I personally wonder how many of them even knew what they were voting for. Well, the first document then here, which we'll cover tonight, is this Constitution on the Liturgy. And this is what Butler wrote in summarizing what this document is going to change. That's why he has future there. The whole people of God joined in divine worship with everyone taking an active part. Common prayer, singing, and common reception of the body of Christ. The new Mass is being outlined there that everyone is going to be talking. Everyone's going to be participating. Notice he says, private masses de-emphasized. Now what happened with that? After Vatican II, Paul VI, when he was putting these reforms in, 
priests no longer were allowed to offer private masses. You've been to St. Patrick's Cathedral, you've been to these enormous basilicas, you know, there's the main altar, the main chapel, they call it, and on the side, there's all kinds of side altars. All kinds of side altars. That's because every priest offered his own mass, whether he had a congregation or not. After Vatican II, that all stopped. There were no more private masses. And the reason why is because, well, they wanted this, but they wanted to break down that barrier, as it were. A barrier is a poor choice of a word here. That line between the priesthood and the laity. That the priest could not offer a private mass without the people there to give their approval and their assent to this. So how did they then, how were they going to accommodate all the priests if there were no more private masses? It's called concelebration. They have five, ten, twenty, sometimes even a hundred priests in the sanctuary wearing a white alb and a stole, often a rainbow-colored stole, and they're standing there, and they're all con-celebrating together. That is, they're all offering the Mass. And no more private Masses. Do you know who the first person in history to condemn private Masses and speak and write against it? Martin Luther. He detested private Masses because he detested the priesthood. And now that they had to have no more private masses, they would concelebrate. In the Catholic Church, the only time concelebration was ever allowed, ordination. Ordination to the priesthood, where the newly ordained priest offers the mass with the bishop and the consecration of a bishop where the newly consecrated bishop concelebrates with the consecrating bishop. Bishop Butler goes on to say here, an awakening of the sense of the living God who still acts on us today through word and sacrament. Whatever that means. Expanded scripture readings with a richer, more varied arrangement of passages with services of the Word of God even outside Mass. And the only thing I have to say about that, he says, expanded scripture readings. The church year, as you know, or should know, we read the same epistle and gospel every year on those Sundays. First Sunday of Advent, all the way through to the last Sunday after Pentecost, it's the same epistle and gospel. One of the changes they did was to make it a three-year cycle and have, as they called for, a richer, more varied arrangement of passages. Church always repeated it every year. Because that is the word of God, and she has deliberately picked those out as they were, because there is something every year that can be said about that epistle or that gospel. 
in which we can learn or at least be reminded of every year. He goes on to say, adjustment to national differences through the introduction of the vernacular. Adjustment to national differences through introduction to the vernacular. Well, instead of uniting Catholics around the world with the one language of Latin, where a man in the United States of America could travel to Poland, to Italy, to even Central Africa, and attend Mass, he knew what was happening. The words were familiar to him. Intro evil at altare day. Now we're going to do the vernacular to adjust to the national differences. And what that does, it creates national churches instead of one universal church united in one language. Uh, he goes on to say, immediately understandable ritual purifying and tightening of the liturgical structure with an emphasis on essentials, whatever that means. Concession of the chalice to lay people on special occasions. They allowed the lay people to have access to the precious blood. They started letting people come up to the altar and drink from the chalice, and then they had the little uh, cups that they would put out, etc., and in concelebration of several priests made possible now, and a revision of the liturgy for the administration of the sacraments, a rearrangement of the ecclesiastical year. This is a very short thing here, but what it outlines is everything that took place in the changes of the Mass, the whole document taken together, all the seeds for changing the Mass to the new Mass, the seeds for changing the sacramental rites and the whole ecclesiastical year are in this document of the Constitution on the Liturgy. And I think we'll stop there in our next meeting uh, next month, which I believe is uh, Thursday, May the 9th. We'll be getting together. We'll continue just going through these documents uh, of Vatican II. But as I say, the reason I, I want to do this is because uh, we do owe Bishop Butler some thanks here because he did make it easy for us to look at this. But the reason why I want to, as I've already said, is because you understand, you're familiar with what's in the documents of Vatican II. You perfectly and clearly understand where all of this stuff came from today. Because everything is explicitly or implicitly contained in these documents of Vatican II, and thus everything that's happening is from Vatican II. That is why we, priests of the Society and Congregation of St. Pius V, we can't make any uh, deals, as it were, with anybody and work with somebody who's going to be working at using Vatican II. Where you're either Catholic or you're not. It's not about being liberal or conservative. It's being Catholic or not.